Hello, and welcome to the TLT Scale Up Insights series of podcasts with me, Nina Searle, and my co-host, Andrew Jennings. Andrew and I are partners in the fast growth team here at TLT. We are a cross-jurisdictional UK team, helping rapidly scaling businesses to manage the legal challenges that come with growth. In each episode, we'll dive into key topics that you're going to be thinking about as you grow your business and what you really need to know from a legal perspective. We share our insights and advice on the issues that clients bring to us on a daily basis and discuss them with experts, both from inside and outside the firm, drawing on their experience and the advice that they have found most valuable. We aim to work with our clients throughout their journey, supporting them from scale to sale. So whatever your business goals, this series will give you the insights you need to help you stay on course and achieve them. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you have any questions about anything we discuss in the show, please do get in touch at scaleupinsights at tltsolicitors.com. Today, I'm joined by Siobhan Fitzgerald, a partner in our employment practice here at TLT, to talk about managing your workforce and all the legal and regulatory requirements that need to be considered as your team grows. Your people may well be your most valuable asset, but managing them can prove challenging for scaling businesses. Siobhan, to kick us off, it would be great if you could tell our listeners a bit more about yourself and how you help our clients to manage their employment-related challenges. Okay. Hi, Nina. I have been an employment lawyer for 16 years, which does make me feel very old, but hopefully know a little bit about employment law. So I cover a full range of employment law issues from litigation, where employees bring employment tribunal claims, but also advisory matters. So clients phone up when they have an issue with employees and and we give them some pointers and and help them to deal with the the situation. So you really advise employers on the whole process of being an employer from recruitment to dismissal or redundancy, like both ends of the spectrum. But for our listeners, I think it would be great to start at the beginning and to get your view of the first things that people should be thinking about as they begin to take on employees. Yes, absolutely. So when you're first thinking about taking on employees, there's some, you know, very initial steps that you need to take, such as registering with HMRC to become a new employer, obviously for tax and payroll matters. You also need to make sure you've got employers liability insurance in place. But from a legal perspective, probably one of the first things that we would see employers looking to do is to develop an employment contract so you can give that to your employees when they start with you. And certainly from the 1st of April 2020, you have to have an employment law contract in place for employees. That's a legal requirement. So that will cover things like job title, the duties of the employee, the place of work, their holiday, their notice pay, those sort of standard terms that you'd expect to see in an employment contract. Now, you may not have one at all or never seen one before, but you know there's lots of resources out there to enable new employers to get one up and running. So you can have a look on the government website, you can have a look on the ACAS website. And ACAS is a very useful organization for new employers because it has lots of pointers around what rights employees have, but also has a lot of basic contracts and policies and procedures in place that a new employer can access. So that they don't need to come to a, a firm of lawyers at the beginning when, you know, budgets are tight. Yeah. There's, there's yeah. freely available resources online. Yes, absolutely. I mean, obviously you could come to us if you want a more bespoke contract, but there are contract templates out there, including on the ACAS website, which I think would be a really good starting point for a new employer. And Siobhan, what do you think are the red flags for people to have in mind that, you know, might mean that for them, those 
template contracts that you've mentioned aren't going to be, aren't likely to be appropriate or aren't going to have the right protections in them? Are there any particular services or sectors where actually they don't quite cut it or would they be a great starting point for anybody? Yeah, well, I think they're a great starting point. But you know, if you are an employer, for example, where these are going to be quite senior employees and they're going to have access to some quite sensitive information that even they could potentially use in future, you know, to effectively steal from you, you might want things in place called restrictive covenants. And those are something which probably do need to be drafted with a bit more of an eye on your particular business just to make sure that they're enforceable. But, you know, key terms like, you know, notice pay and duties and things are standard and can be, you know, you can probably draft that up yourself with the assistance of those documents that you can find online. And in addition to employment contracts, Siobhan, what other documents would employers need to be thinking about getting in place from the outset? Yeah, so it can be useful as well to have a job description in place. So a job description is not a legally required document, but it's useful because it sets out the expectations you have of an employee and what you're going to expect them to do in their day-to-day role. And then it can also set out you know, who the employee reports to and that kind of thing. So I think it's quite helpful to have that in place. And presumably it makes it easier in the unfortunate event that your staff aren't performing correctly or an employee isn't performing the way you want them to. At least it gives you something to point to, to to kind of hold them to and show them what you were expecting from them. Exactly. Yes, that's that's ideal situation to have. Now, if you are just starting out with taking on employees, you might know that you're definitely going to need an employee into the foreseeable future and you might want to issue them with a permanent contract. But there are different types of contract that you can use and this might be quite useful for startup businesses. So say, for example, you know you've got a big project coming in and you're going to need someone for a set period of time. You can have what's called a fixed term contract. So that could be for a period of six months or a period of 12 months, for example. And it just gives you that bit of flexibility that you know that you're not giving someone a sort of permanent guarantee of employment. You could also think about a part-time contract, for example, if you don't have enough to give someone, you know, work from Monday to Friday, nine to five sort of thing. Or you could even think about what we also call a casual worker contract. So you might need someone now and then, but you can't guarantee that you would have work for them all the time. And that can work as in you can offer them some work and they take it on and it gives you that little bit more flexibility. And from the employee or recruit perspective, do they have the same rights, whichever one of those contracts you as the employer decide is most appropriate? Yes. So if you take on someone under a fixed term contract or a part-time contract, for example, they're your employee and they have the normal employment rights. And indeed, people have a little bit extra protection. So there's legislation prohibiting discrimination against part-time workers or fixed term workers, that sort of thing. With a casual contract, it's a little bit different because you don't have to give them work. So you could offer them some work and they could choose to take it on, but it just gives you that little bit extra flexibility. And I think we're going to come on a little bit later to talk about the actual rights and claims that employees can bring as well. So some of the provisions of the contracts presumably will be the same, whichever type of contract they are, but others will vary by contract. Do you want to talk a little bit more about the key terms that employers should make sure they include in their employment contracts? Yeah, absolutely. So 
One term which is really useful to have in there is what we call a probationary period. So often this is that when the employee comes in, their first three months will be effectively like a trial period to see how they get on. And that is very useful because you know, you're recruiting perhaps for the first time. You don't know what this person's going to be like. You don't know how it's going to work having an employee in your business. So it can help to have a review period built in at which the, at the end of that, you both assess whether it's working out. And if it wasn't working out in a worst case scenario, then you could give the employee notice to terminate their contract. Presumably, while they're in that probation period or just at the end, it's easier to go through that process to part company than if you continue to retain them. Yes, absolutely. And what often happens in an employment contract is there is a shorter notice period during the probationary period than there is once you've passed your probationary period. So it means you don't have to sort of stick with the employee quite so long if you're getting, you know, parting company with them quite quickly. And is it right as well, Siobhan, that while you're in your probation period, an employee might not be entitled to all the same benefits that that they might get once they've completed their probation? So they may not be entitled, for example, to be paid if they're off sick. Yes. So you can certainly ensure that certain benefits don't kick in until after the probationary period because they're effectively rewarding the loyalty a little bit of the employee and making sure that it, it works out effectively. Another key term that you need to think about when you're drafting your employment contract is the notice period. So there are certain statutory minimum notice periods that are in place for employees, effectively that you have to give a week's notice per year of employment up to a maximum of 12. So say, for example, someone's been with you for five years, they have to get at least five weeks notice. But a small business can be vulnerable if your key employee just leaves and walks out the door within a few weeks. So what you might want to do is put a longer notice period in the contract, give you that extra protection. So say, for example, you might say even from day one, you have to give me three months notice because I'd need time to be able to work out who I was going to get to replace you or, you know, to hand over projects and that sort of thing. I guess on the flip side, though, if you go for that three month notice period and you just want them to go and never come back again, you're going to have to pay them three months pay. Absolutely. Yes. So getting that added protection does create a, a potential disadvantage for an employer in those circumstances. Although if you really just want them to go, you can do what's called paying them in lieu of notice. Now, that does obviously involve paying them, but at least they wouldn't be in the business. Now, if you are an employer who is perhaps developing some new technology or, you know, something very innovative, you might want to make sure that you've got really tight IP clauses in your contract and also confidentiality. IP is naturally owned by the employer anyway when created by an employee, but it's just useful to have a provision in the contract just to make that really clear. And as I mentioned before, as regards restrictive covenants, you know, if you are worried about what an employee might get up to after they leave, for example, stealing clients or customers or competing with you, you might want to think about putting restrictive covenants in place. And that's something, as we said, that probably does merit a bit more bespoke advice on because you want to make them as enforceable as you can. Yeah. And that's something that we also picked up in our IP retrospective podcast as well, when we talked to Dan Reed about protecting intellectual property and making sure that you're keeping it close if that's the most important asset to your business. Yeah, absolutely. 
Siobhan, once an employee has completed their probation period and everybody's happy, they're going to stay and you've got their employment contract in place, what benefits can the employees expect to have and do employers need to be prepared to offer? Yes, yeah, so this is a really good point because if you're becoming a new employer, you need to be aware of what benefits people are absolutely entitled to um, under the statutory schemes or also potential benefits that you might choose to give them as an employer, you know, perhaps to incentivize them, for example. So some key statutory benefits that you need to be aware of when an employee is of sick, for example, after three days, they will be entitled to statutory sick pay. Now, that's one that you could choose to enhance. So the minimum is that they are entitled to statutory sick pay, but you could decide that actually, perhaps for the first few weeks or even few months of sickness, the employer would pay full pay for the sick leave. uh, And that's something that you could consider I guess the downside of that is that you won't have your employee there and you might have to pay extra to get the the project done or the piece of work done. Yeah. But on the flip side, you are looking after your people, incentivizing them to stay with you, to work hard for you, to feel well looked after. And and all of that can help to build a positive culture. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, sick pay is an important recruitment tool almost for employees because they might be looking at a set of benefits thinking well shall I work for you or shall I go down the road and work for another company so you know if you can show that you've got some benefits in place that might be quite attractive to potential new recruits. Now a couple of other things that you need to be aware of uh, as an employer it's now compulsory to auto enroll your employees into a pension scheme and there's lots of information online about the details of how to do that and you know I should just say on this and, and other things more generally the government website is very good about giving you the sort of basics about what you need to do in these sorts of things. Then there's family-related leave. So say, for example, you have a female employee who then becomes pregnant and takes maternity leave. She will probably be entitled to statutory maternity pay. If you have someone whose partner has had a baby, they might decide to take what's called shared parental leave. And there would be an entitlement uh, in many cases to shared parental pay. So there's just a few legal frameworks out there, I suppose, that employers need to be aware of. And, you know, there will be some minimum payments under that that they need to know about. And what are the consequences of getting it wrong if you don't know about it and and you mess up? You might not have meant to do it, but as you say, there's statutory requirements. So what's the sort of sanction? Yeah. Well, I mean, you... In a worst case scenario, an employee could go to an employment tribunal to say that they hadn't been paid what they were entitled to. I mean, you would hope that you could sort it out so an employee could point out that, well, actually, you need to pay me this and the employer could agree. But it's, I suppose that could be a bit embarrassing. You almost want to be well prepared and know what your responsibilities are in the first instance. So, you know, if you, for example, you had an employee who was, say, pregnant, you could then go on the government website, check all the things that you need to do associated with their maternity leave and and what you might need to pay them. And in a competitive market for employers to recruit in some areas, you do need to be alive to your employer's reputation, don't you? To what people in the market are saying about you as an employer and whether you're a good employer or not makes quite a big difference in some sectors. 
Yes, absolutely. And, you know, enhancing benefits, even like maternity pay, because you could enhance the statutory pay and give uh, sort of company maternity pay for a period, you know, that can be attractive to employees and can set the tone for how you are as an employer. And, you know, presumably, you know, you will want to have a very good relationship with your employee. You'll want to sort of buy in their loyalty. And often employers find they get more out of the relationship when they are a bit more sort of open and willing to share, I suppose, with the employee. I mean, that probably also leads us on to pay arrangements. So obviously you will think about what you need to pay your employee. You know, there is legislation in place such as the national minimum wage that you can't go below, although probably most of the employers we're talking to today would be paying, you know, well above that. But you also might want to think about different pay arrangements as to how you can incentivize employees. So you know, bonus schemes or in other incentive arrangements are quite common in sort of startup businesses because it really helps the employee to buy in and invest in the success of the business, especially if they know that they're going to share a little bit in the profits at the end of the day. It's a good point, Siobhan, around incentivizing employees and obviously talked about profit sharing, but there are other non-financial ways to incentivize employees. And we'll be picking up on that in a future podcast with our colleague, Lucy Hedges, who works with share incentive schemes. Yes. So we'll revisit that topic. Just one of the phrases I hear a lot when I'm out and about with scaling businesses is that you should hire slow and fire fast, Siobhan. So you, you put your <laughs> energy into recruitment and finding the right people. But if and when you realize that it's something somewhere along the line that's gone wrong yes. and that this person isn't the right person, that you shouldn't waste time and resource trying to fix it. You need to come to that decision quite quickly yeah. so that it doesn't do great harm to the business. Now, obviously, that makes a lot of sense on one level, but there must be processes and policies that you must have to have in place, both to protect you against any employment tribunal claim going forward, but also to protect your employees and make sure that there's a fair process. Yes, absolutely. You know, I've definitely heard that before about firing fast. I think that what it's important for listeners to be aware of is that employees have greater rights the longer their length of service. So unfair dismissal is one of the key claims that an employee can bring against an employer to say they feel like they have been unfairly dismissed from the business and they could bring a claim to an employment tribunal. But importantly, you only accrue the right to claim unfair dismissal once you've been with the employer for two years. So that does give you a reasonable amount of flexibility up to that point to part company with the employee a little bit earlier. So that's unfair dismissal, but it's really important to be aware that discrimination claims can be brought from day one of the employee's employment. So if they feel that they have been dismissed due to a protected characteristic, so their race, sex, disability, sexual orientation, that sort of thing, then they can bring a claim straight away and you don't have to have that two years service. But provided, for example, that you have an employee who you know doesn't have any particular protected characteristic and that's not an issue, which is often the case, you do have that flexibility up to the two-year point to be able to part company. And as you say, it is often better to do it sooner rather than later because you can normally tell maybe within the first sort of six months that someone hasn't settled in, that it doesn't really suit them. And you know that if you dismiss at that six-month point, that certainly from an unfair dismissal perspective, you should be relatively safe. Thank you, Siobhan. That's all really helpful information, I think, to know. And you talked about employees not being able to bring a claim until they've been employed for two years. But if an issue arises in that two-year window, presumably there's still some kind of 
process that you should go through or some guidance as to best practice? Yes. So definitely best practice would be that you would follow a procedure with an employee. So say, for example, there was a misconduct issue, you might look to a disciplinary policy, for example, or if there's a performance issue, you might look to a performance policy. Now, as a new employer, you probably don't have any of those policies yet. So again, and I keep harking back to it, but have a look on the ACAS website because that has sample policies and procedures that you can use. Now, I mean, there are endless employment policies that you could have for pretty much everything under the sun. So a new startup business doesn't need to have hundreds of policies, but you know, there's probably some key things you need, like a disciplinary policy is helpful to have, um, a grievance policy is helpful to have. So that's where an employee wants to raise a complaint to you as the employer and it might also be useful to have a performance management policy but probably just a handful along those lines is sufficient so let's say then for example someone isn't performing well then you would have your performance policy you would it would set out the stages that you need to go through in managing their performance and i mean hopefully you address their performance you give them support and training and they can improve such that you don't need to terminate their employment but the policy would set out the steps that you would need to take to reach that and normally you would be issuing what's called performance warnings. So, you know, a first warning, a final warning before you reach the dismissal stage. Now, strictly speaking, when an employee has less than two years service, you could say, we're not going to follow those procedures because obviously they haven't got the right to bring a claim. But just in case someone could allege discriminatory conduct against you, it's often quite useful, even if it's a slightly truncated process, but just to follow something. So it's very clear the reason for their dismissal was the poor performance and not not the fact of you know that they are a disabled person or their race etc. That's very helpful thank you Siobhan. Is there anything else that we haven't covered today that you think is key for employers to be aware of? So one thing that we haven't mentioned is that you have a duty to make sure when you take on a new employee that they have the right to work in the UK and there are certain checks that you need to go through to make sure that that's the case. So for example, if you again, you have a look on the government website, it sets out certain documents that you need to obtain and actually it's a criminal offence not to do this. So you really need to make sure that you've seen what you need to see and kept a record of it. Now, obviously, well, we don't quite know what's going to be happening as a result of Brexit. And the, the, there are certainly some proposed changes for European nationals in the future that might make it slightly different to what it is currently. And the documents are going to be needed to be checked for European nationals where they hadn't been needed to be checked in the past. But I suppose that's a little bit of a watch this space and see what the requirements turn out to be. And in all of our other podcasts, Siobhan, we've asked our guests what their key takeaway would be from the things that we've discussed during the podcast. And today's no exception. What do you think is the most important thing for employers to take out of today? Well, I think that what I see is one of the greatest frustrations for employers is performance management. So where they have someone who just isn't performing at the level that they require for the business. So I would say recruit carefully. You've already said recruit slowly, ensuring that they have the right skills for what you need. And you know that's especially important when you're in a small business. If you're a big business, you can sometimes carry someone or you can supplement their skills with someone else's. But in a smaller organization, that becomes more obvious where they have their holes in their experience. 
I would also suggest proactive performance management. So don't just let things slide. I know it can be difficult to have those conversations, but it's better to be doing that from an early stage so that someone is clear as to what's required from them. I mean, sometimes with the best intentions, it just doesn't work out. And it's better for both parties, I think, to deal with that early on. Training and support, you know, sometimes, especially with a startup business, someone can come in and they don't just have a little niche role somewhere like they might in a big organization. They're required to, you know, do lots of different things. And so if you might need to provide them with a little bit of extra training and support, they may well be then very good at those extra things you need them to do. And finally, I would just say if it's not working out, it is probably better to part company sooner rather than later for all the reasons that we've stated, but also the fact that obviously once they've hit that two-year point, they do get those extra rights and it does make it more difficult to part company and it does mean that they could bring a claim. And I suppose maybe the very final thing is just to avail yourself of the resources that are available. You know, you don't need to be spending lots and lots of money. You can use the ACAS website, use the government guidance. And I think that gives you a really good basic grounding as to what you need to do when you're thinking about hiring employees. Thank you so much, Siobhan, for joining us today. I'm sure our listeners will have taken away many things to consider for both their businesses and their employees as they move forward with their business. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Scale Up Insight podcast. If you have any questions about anything we discussed in the show, please get in touch at scaleupinsights at trtsolicitors.com. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please rate us and leave us a review on your podcast app. It means that more people can find us and take a listen. The information in this podcast is for general guidance and represents our understanding of the relevant law and practice at the time of recording. We recommend you seek advice in specific cases. Please visit our website for our full terms and conditions.